I have a confession to make to you today. I am a uh, fixer. I don't fix everything. There's certain things that I, it's above my uh, ability to fix, so I have friends who I call. And I'm like, hey, can you help me out with this thing? But I do, I do like fixing things that are within my skill set, which is pretty small. But I do enjoy it. Uh, recently, I, you, you may have known that I, I purchased a, a used truck. And when I put that truck off the lot, I thought, you know, this is broken and this is kind of out of date. It's a 2009. This could be upgraded. So I went about fixing or repairing or upgrading my truck. I won't tell you how much money I've spent over the last few weeks on that truck. Not because I'm embarrassed to buy it, because it's not a large sum of money, but uh, my wife thinks it's a large sum of money because she's seen Amazon and eBay boxes continue to come. And if I told you how much I spent, I'd have to tell her too, because she's on the front row. So let's just say I've put some money into this truck, not in the engine, I don't touch that, but I, I, I'll rip out a dashboard and put a stereo in and mess with light bulbs. So anyway, I'm a fixer, which is, an, which is a weird thing to admit, I understand, because of last week's message, which we're going to get to. Uh, last week I mentioned that the, the thing that you should do when it comes to your sin problem is not actually try to fix it. But here I am, a guy who fixes stuff. I mean, I fix light bulbs. When a light bulb goes out in my house, it's the dad's job to fix the light bulbs. I will hunt down other light bulbs, and I will fix every light bulb at once. I, I, I fix attitudes. That's what a parent does. I fix people. That's what pastors... Actually, pastors do not fix people. Pastors lose people when they try to fix them. God fixes people. But it's a weird thing to admit that that's how I'm wired. That's what I, I, I'm a problem solver. I've only learned that the only problem I can't solve is when my wife has a bad day. You just listen, guys, just listen. Now, last week I recognized I was talking about, we talked about, about sin, and I said, hey, you know, the best bet is to trust God and not try to fix your sin. And you're like, wait, you know, and you, you guys remember this illustration last week? I stood here and said, oftentimes we think that God's on the other side of this pile of sin and it's our duty to like work this pile down, eliminate this pile so we can get to God. That's what we called sin management. I'm going to manage my sin. I have to please God. I have to uh, not do the, the, the wrong things and do the right things so I can be holy. That God is, uh, he loves me so much he sent his son Jesus to, to die on the cross to clean my slate. But since I made my slate dirty again, he's pretty disappointed in me. You remember that? And I said, working on it is actually not the answer. And I said, we have to come over here and trust that what God says is true of us is true, that we are holy, we are righteous because of what Christ has done. And some of you are like, okay, that makes sense, but there's still a sin issue. That makes sense, I guess, but... And some of you actually thought, wow, that's a new concept. Like, you know, the, the Christian life is a, a, a journey of trust where we grow and mature into who God already says we are. Cool, you walked out, you felt good, you went to lunch, and then you thought, wait a minute, is Jerome telling us to, like, neglect our sin issue? Can we just ignore the sin in our life? I mean, is that what he's saying to do? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> if you have second thoughts, if you think that I'm saying we should neglect, I, I, I believe today's message is going to give you some reassurance. It's going to build off last week's message. And we remember the whole idea of this series is the real deal. The reason we don't, the reason we aren't the real deal, the reason we wear Max is as long as we're working on our sin, as long as we're trying to address and fix this thing, it's up to us. And since we can never really successfully work this pile down, we have no choice but to hide. We're afraid of, of being the real deal. We have to wear a mask. 
We have to uh, live with a fear that we're going to be found out. This message today, and I told you last week, if you come to one service in the month of March, let it be today. Thank you for being here. I expect you here next week as well. But this message is about how doing this thing, even though it seems a little counterintuitive, not working on your sin, is how trusting God really is the best way to address, the most effective way to address your sin. See, when you, start, when you stop trying to fix your sin issues, you be actually begin to sin less. Let me say that again, because I know some of this is so embedded if you grew up in church and you've signed up for like accountability groups and you've signed, nothing wrong with accountability groups, but it's not the, the answer. It's, it's a help. It's not the answer. You've signed up for software for your computer so you're not surfing porn. I don't care what it is. When you've tried to manage your sin and fix it, the most effective way is just trusting God and who he says you already are. And we're going to look at that today. I know it sounds weird. I know it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like I'm saying you want a brighter smile, don't brush your teeth. But in the kingdom of God, things are upside down. The first is the last. The greatest is the servant. And when I am weak, I am strong. Trusting God is the most effective way to address your sin. Let's take a look at it. Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. And as you do, allow me to give you a little background. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Um, it was a church that was near and dear to his heart. You could read about his relationship with them in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. In 18, he's on the tail end of his second missionary journey. On 19, he's at the beginning of his third. He stays for three years. And in verse 20, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He knows the end is near. He knows he's going to be arrested. So he calls for the elders in a nearby town to meet him uh, in a nearby town so he could say goodbye to them. He knows he'll never see them again. Near and dear to Paul's heart. And his purpose in writing this letter while he was in prison in Rome, after he finally said goodbye, is to give them instruction on how to live life, how to live the Christian life in light of what Christ had done on the cross. And he opens up Ephesians with this prayer that they would have spiritual wisdom. Verse 1, or verse 19 of chapter 1, he says this, that they, he prays that they would understand the incredible greatness of God's power for those of us who believe in him. He wants them to understand what God has done for them and then who they are because of what God has done. Read with me, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our very nature, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just as everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. So so God can't point to us, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united in Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. 
For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now we're going to walk through this passage and we're going to talk about how trusting God is the most effective way to address your sins. How when you trust God and stop trying to strive to fix your sins, you actually sin less. I know it seems like it doesn't, it doesn't, it seems counterintuitive, but we're going to talk about this passage and we'll get there. Verses one through three, we see Paul kind of setting the, the, the context. He had just prayed, I pray that you understand the, gr- the great richness of, of God's power and understanding what he has done. So he says, Here, here's, the, here's the context in which God showed that. You were spiritually dead, separated, alienated, alienated from God. He describes spiritually dead people as you live just like the rest of the world. You obeyed Satan. Now, I'm not saying non-Christians take direct orders from Satan. All I'm saying is the world has fallen and so are its values, and so are its people, including us before Christ. Verse 3, he says, And because you live like everybody else, dead spiritually, you follow the desires of your sinful nature. And then he transitions in verse 4. But God. Incredibly powerful, theological, good news announcing transition. You were spiritually dead, things were bad. But God. I giggle a little bit when I see this because when I was a youth pastor, we had a missions theme from the denomination that came with posters and banners, and it was called But God. And my senior pastor, who's my hero, was like, we're not putting But God on the wall. So uh, not a good missions theme, but a great theological transition. You were dead, but God did something. God steps in. It's an introduction to the good news, and the good news is only good when the situation is bad. And he's painted a bad situation in verses one through three. Like if a bad situation's, anyways. He says this in verses four through 10, that the good news is the result of God's mercy and his grace. And then he tells us these three actions that Christ has done that are part of the good news. Verse five, he made us alive with Christ. Then he puts a parenthetical statement at the end of verse five. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Everyone should amen on that one, <laughs> at least when you read it at home. We're going to come back to that verse because he expands on it in a little bit. But he, he made us alive with Christ. In verse 6, he raised us up with Christ. And then he says, he seated us with him in heavenly realms. Now, this is a figure of speech, meaning that he considers us worthy and destined to be seated with Christ in heaven when we finally get there. And then in verse 7, he says something. Let me read verse 7 to you. He did all of these things made us alive, raised us, and seated him, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all, or as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Now, the Greek word here, show, actually is to display. He displayed like, a, like a, an artist who displays his work to show off his skill in a gallery. He's showing us off to display his grace and his kindness. And then verses 8 and 9, he goes back to this parenthetical statement we read in verse 5. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. Let me read this slow and with emphasis because I want to emphasize it. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done, so none of us can boast about it. I recognize for most of us, this is a very, very familiar passage. 
I recognize some of us have memorized this passage when we were children in Sunday school. But I'm going to come back to this passage because for those of us who memorize that passage but still have been playing the sin management game, let's look at this with fresh eyes. Paul elaborates on that verse 5 parenthetical statement, it's only by God's grace that you've been saved. Not only it's God's grace, but it's a gift from God. You can't take credit, and it's when you believed. The grace that he shows is, is grace because it's a kindness that's undeserved. Grace cannot be grace if it's deserved. It's just a reward. This is not a reward. This is grace. He, doesn't, he isn't required to offer salvation, but he does. He would be justified in condemning us, giving us what we deserve, but he doesn't. And says, instead, he gives us something we don't deserve. He didn't have to, but he loved us and he wanted to. Salvation belongs to him and it's under his initiative. We get no credit. I'm not going to get into the Arminian Calvinism thing right here, but listen, he gets the credit for the grace he shows and the Bible speaks of he gets the credit for the faith that we put in him. He gets the credit for both. I read this definition of faith. There's other definitions of faith that are excellent, but this one works for today. Faith is trustfully accepting from God what he has provided without totally understanding what you are receiving. We trustfully accept without totally understanding what we're receiving. In order to receive it, though, we must give up and let go to open our hands to receive it. Verse 10, he calls us God's masterpieces. If we could earn salvation, then we, would not, then we would not be a work of God, but a work of ourselves. We were created new. What does he say right there in verse 10? So we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Not doing good work for God, but God doing good work through us. Now, I know you're thinking, okay, Jerome, this is like foundational salvation passage. You were right. I learned that as a child. What does this have to do with addressing my sin issue today? Well, this passage teaches us that we can't do a thing about our sin, doesn't it? Right? The lesson in this passage is only God can handle your sin. Am I correct? No? Is that what the lesson of this, message, this passage is? Only God can handle your sin. So we're not ignoring our sin issues. Actually, what I'm saying here in this passage, the, the, the message of this passage is God and only God can handle your sin. Only God can handle your sin. We all agree with that. We all amend that. That's why we're here as Christians, if we are a Christian. But as we live this Christian life, let me ask you this question. Why can we all agree this truth that only God can handle our sin? We couldn't earn our own salvation, but yet we continue to try to handle our sin. We all amen God could only handle our sin, but yet we're here trying to handle our sin. If God is the only one who could win us salvation, who could take care of our sin issue from before we became Christians, he's taking care of our sin issue today, and he's taking care of our sin issue tomorrow. I wonder if perhaps we try to fix our sin because we really, on the inside, although we wouldn't admit it, maybe we don't really trust that Christ's work on the cross is enough. It's like circumcision. It's the cross and 
cleaning up my sin. It's the cross and circumcision from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And I know some of you are like, okay, Jerome, but I'm, I'm, I, I think I know what you're saying, but I'm somewhat uncomfortable with what seems like a passive approach to sin. Because if I ignore sin, doesn't sin get bigger? If I neglect sin, isn't sin going to get worse? Let me go back to this trash pile, and I have some help. With Pastor Josh and, and Hawk are going to help me out with this. If you walked out of these doors last week and thought, I get what Jerome's saying, but if we don't work on our sin, then, boy, that seems like you're pretty cavalier about sin. Like, sin isn't taken seriously. But I'm going to suggest just the opposite is true. I believe that trusting God is taking sin seriously. And if you think you can fix sin, if you think you can address your sin, then you are not taking sin seriously. What arrogance of us to think that we can handle our own sin. If you think you could address sin in your life, if you could fix the sin that exists, the sin issue that you have, the problems you have, then you don't respect the power of sin and you're the one not taking it seriously. If you, think what, what you have, if you think you have what it takes to defeat sin, then you don't think very much of sin. See, trusting God on this side, that I am who he says that I am, the most effective way to handle sin is because I'm saying, God, I, I can't do this. I'm showing a dependence I'm saying, God, only you can handle this. I'm showing him honor for what only he can do. But if I'm over here working on sin, here's the problem with trying to work on sin. Come on, guys. I could try to empty these garbage bags. Sin comes in the form of brown bags. Oh, yeah, thanks a lot, bud. But here's the problem. As I'm emptying these bags, working on myself because I am a sinner, I'm continuing to, this pile keep is getting bigger. It's probably getting bigger faster than I'm actually emptying this bag. You get what I'm saying? These guys think I sin a lot. Thanks a lot for that. I said earlier that we, we actually sin less when we trust God. And anybody who's ever been on a diet knows that when you go on like a sin diet, you have cheat days. How much sin do you think I have? (laughs) Keep coming, actually. See, we try to handle our sin by putting sin on a diet. Like, I I know I will never be sinless, but I could sin less. And if I could sin less, then God will be happy with me because I'm sinning less. So we put ourselves on a diet and said like, you know, I have to eat something, but I I, I could eat less, right? I'm going to restrict my calories. I'm going, to, I'm going to do sin light diet. It's like the Atkins, but no, not really. Um, but anyone who's ever been on a diet that, where you have to restrict calories knows that you cheat, right? Right? Any re- restrictive diet just begs us to cheat because we want what we can't have. We fixate on that thing. As a matter of fact, here's what happens with Sin. We, uh, we start to justify the sin. I've been so good for so long. Just one piece of chocolate cake. 
I've been really, really good. But you know what? I'm human. I could be bad once in a while. Just one chocolate bar. I don't really care anymore. I cared yesterday. I'll probably care tomorrow. But right now, I want this. Ice cream, pornography, whatever that this would be. We cheat on our diets. Because we're trying to manage it. And we get tired of managing it. We get weary. And we have to reward ourselves once in a while because we're tired. We elevate sin when we fixate on it, when we, we, we want that thing that we can't have to a place that almost kind of defines our identity. And, we are, and we'll say stuff like, well, you know what? This is just who I am and I'm never really gonna change. So let me indulge a little bit, but I'll be mostly good. It's not what God's asking us to do. I'm convinced when you trust God, you sin less. When we become who God says we already are, righteous and right standing, penalty's been paid. We sin less. He transforms us from the inside out. It's not an external. Look at verse 10 with me really quick. And here's why this is important. And here's why I want you to catch this. Let me read verse 10 for you. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things he planned for us long ago. This is why this is critical. God has planned good things for you. He has plans and purposes for your life. Plans for your life and your influence to make an impact for the kingdom in this world, which makes sin management not so much misguided zealousness for the Lord. I really think sin management is a lie of the devil. Because the longer you're over here trying to empty and trying to reduce the sin pile, thinking you're doing the right thing, misguided, the devil's happy. Because the longer you're over here trying to fix yourself, you're not living out who God says you are. As long as you're over here, you're questioning who God says you are. As you're long, long you're over here, you keep working, you keep living in defeated guilt and shame because you'll never knock this pile down because it keeps growing faster than you can knock it down. He's happy that you don't trust that what God says is true. And I think the devil is happy that you think you can handle your sin. He knows we're going to get stuck there. I'd like to say, because I spent a lot of my life trying to fix my sin, that it was just misguided zealousness for the Lord. But I look at it now, I'm thinking, well, maybe that was the devil's plan all along. Because as long as I'm doing this, guess what I'm not doing? I'm not living out my destiny. I'm not living out my plans or God's plans and purposes for my life. God and only God can handle your sin. So here's just what I want you to do. Just three things in terms of changing how we think and uh, how we see things. The first is this. Change how you view God. This is kind of a continuation of the point I made last week, but he's not on the other side of your sin pile, impatiently waiting for you to clean yourself up. He's right next to you, and you're looking at that sin together. Change how you view God. If, he's, if, if you continue to see him as that God who's expecting performance because your dad expected performance or your mom or whoever it is, your football coach, separate those, that, that association. He's not on that side of things. He sees you 
through the lens of the cross. And now you, which is the second thing, change how you view yourself, need to see yourself through the lens of the cross. See, because of the cross, you have been made righteous. You are in right standing with God. Because of the cross, you've been reconciled. You are in right relationship with God. Because of the cross, you are pleasing to God. The penalty of sin has been paid. And because of the cross, you've been made new. Change how you view yourself. Now, here's a small, subtle change that I'm going to suggest to you. Most of us will say, man, we're sinners saved by grace. Great statement. It's, it's helpful when you encourage people who stumble. Say, hey, that's okay. We're all sinners saved by grace. Theologically correct. Nothing wrong with it. But I like to view it this way just because I think it helps me live out who God says I am. When I asked Jesus to be my Savior, when I said, God, would you rescue me? Would you save me? Would you redeem me? I was a sinner saved by grace. But today I'm a saint. I'm a saint, I'm a saint, but I sin. I'm a saint who sins. Small change. That's not theologically incorrect. But I think it sets me up to start with I'm a sinner saved by grace. Because of what Christ has done, God says, I am a saint. I just happen to still have a sin issue. Move from sinner saved by grace to saint who still sins. We are still sinners saved by grace. I don't want anyone to come out of here and say, we are. That's the, that's the crazy thing about the gospel. On our absolute best day, when I'm knocking this pile down and you would not believe how, how, how much I can clean out, on my best day, when I'm serving the Lord, I'm still a wretched sinner in need of grace. But on my absolute worst day, the days when I pile more and more things right here, my worst day, when this pile's bigger than my head, taller than I am, I'm still deeply loved. That's the message of the gospel. When I mess up baby dedications, I'm still deeply loved. buying you lunch. Just The third thing would be this, change the way you think. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, after he lays out 11 chapters of what God has done, he says, be transformed by changing the way you think. Maybe your Bible says the renewing of your mind. We've learned old patterns. We have some stuff that's embedded in us. When you fail, when you miss the mark, when you fall short, let me encourage you, if your gut reaction is like mine, if your first reaction is like mine, don't beat yourself up with guilt and shame. God has not asked you to do that. Repentance is not a punishment where you have to feel bad about yourself. Repentance is not penance that you have to pay. Repentance is a gift. Instead of beating yourself up, hiding from God, hiding from others in your shame and your guilt. Guide your mind to truth. Who are you? A saint who happens to still have a sin issue and God and you are working on it. He's transforming you. Only he can handle your sin. Begin by thanking God for his grace and mercy. Look at him. Because you think he's not looking at you. You're looking like this. And he's like, hey, I'm here, but we're like, oh, 
thank him that you're not judged based on what you have done, but you're judged based on what Christ has done. Cry out to him to bring about the change in your life that you can't possibly make yourself. Repentance is a gift from God. It reminds us of what he has done and it reminds us of who you are in him. You see, the enemy is a liar. He doesn't want you to remember who you are in Christ. He doesn't want you to rejoice in what God has done on your behalf. He wants you to preoccupy yourself trying to fix your sins because he knows it'll mean you'll live a life defeated with guilt and shame. Preoccupied with yourself and on the sidelines not able to realize the destiny God has for you, the plans and purposes he has for your life to impact this world for the kingdom. With the, would you for a moment just consider what your life could be like if you viewed this Christian thing not as a, a race that wears you out, a constant battle against your sin. Some of you are tired. I know because I've been there. I know because I sometimes still go there. These deeply embedded patterns of guilt and shame. These gut reactions of hiding and trying to fix myself. Imagine what it'd be like if you weren't so worn out because you simply trust that what God says is true of you is true. You are in right standing and right relationship. You are made new. What, at that point, we can just turn our attention to what, God, what do you have? What impact do you have? What are your plans and purposes for my life? And let my life be like we saw in those verses your masterpiece, declaring your grace and your kindness. Would you pray with me? No, I'm not going to pray right now. I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I'm 42 years old and I was 32 years old when this, some of this stuff actually kind of made sense in my life. I was 32 years old. I was a missionary. And I was a pastor, ordained minister. Um, and I lived this way. Angry at myself. Quick to be angry at others. Thought God was angry with me and I was irritated with him. I lived a long time this way. I, uh, I, uh, I'll tell you what happened. If I, if I was here 32 years ago when I missed this baby dedication, like I was, sh I was shook a little bit during this sermon. I don't know if you could tell, but I would have been devastated to have screwed up in front of you so badly. I would have been crushed. And I'm tearing up not because I'm devastated, but because I'm so thankful that I'm not crushed. I am genuinely sorry. But that's the difference. There's no mask, man. It could be the real deal. You know what the real deal is, your pastor? He's a mess. 
so much freedom in just being real, taking off the mask, not afraid. If we are, uh, if we're responsible for fixing ourselves, then we have no choice but to put on a mask because we, we stink at it. But if we recognize that God's the one who changes us, then we can wear our faults, we can wear our mistakes pretty comfortably. We can laugh at ourselves and we can encourage others for being pieces of work too. You're a piece of work. God bless you. Let's sing this song. Would you stand with me?